This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. We've been planning for today's program to quote from an article in consortiumnews.com and also another article that is in truthout.org. As we have over the years done our best to join the ranks of citizen journalists and whenever possible support the work of those people that go under the rubric of investigative journalists. And so it is that we must report with great sadness on today's program the passing of Robert Perry. Mr. Perry appeared on this program in 2004 as part of our coverage of the saga surrounding Gary Webb. And so we're going to devote half of today's program to talking about some matters related to Mr. Perry, and also to quote from a piece that appeared in consortiumnews.com on January 22nd, a piece on The Post by James Eugenio, who we hope will join us on next week's program to further flesh out his remarks. We also are planning to speak on today's program with a colleague of mine, someone I've known since the time we were both medical interns. Dr. Roger Orman will be joining us in our second segment today to talk about America's so-called opioid crisis. Dr. Orman is not just a family practitioner. He's also an anesthesiologist and most important as related to our discussion today, has been operating a pain clinic for the past couple of decades, which puts him on the front line in the battle against pain. We strongly suggest you stick around for that discussion after we talk about things political. Although, in truth, I think our discussion on the opioid crisis is, by and large, a political discussion as well. Before we do that, I want to briefly cite a couple of articles, which, frankly, I couldn't resist. The first comes from the Washington Post, an institution we'll have more to say about before this hour's up. I was intrigued by the headline in the piece by Aaron Blake saying, the men allegedly leading the, quote, deep state, unquote, conspiracy against Trump are surprisingly Republican. The piece goes on to talk about Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein, Deputy FBI Director Andrew McCabe, Special Counsel Robert S. Mueller, and Fired FBI Director James B. Comey. It's actually quite a short piece and doesn't have a great deal to say, except what you can find in the headline. The men allegedly leading the quote-unquote deep state conspiracy against Trump are Republican, and surprisingly so. I guess what struck me about that piece the most is the fact that the deep state is now in the headlines, although it does have quotation marks around it to imply that, well, if such a thing actually exists. And since we are going to devote half of today's program to talking about health-related matters, I do have to cite one brief piece from the News of the Weird section. And I guess I'm just going to quote from it. For the headline, Smoke em If You Got em, Weird News notes that Christians in a Portuguese village carry on a curious tradition during Epiphany. They encourage their young children to smoke cigarettes. Yes, evidently the town veiled the Segueto. Locals told Fox News that nobody is sure what the smoking symbolizes, but the centuries-old tradition persists. Peace notes that Portuguese authorities don't intervene, despite the fact that the legal age to purchase tobacco in Portugal is 18. Reportedly, writer 
Jose Ribarina researched the tradition and said that ever since Roman times, the villagers in this town have done things that were out of the norm during winter solstice celebrations. Millen points out that the smoking part of oddball traditions must have taken place after the time Columbus brought tobacco back from the New World. Indeed, that's true. But back to the late, great Robert Perry. When I first got the news, I looked to see what Wikipedia had to say about him. And after reading it, I was not quite sure that, well, some forces inimical to Mr. Perry hadn't inserted a few zingers in the piece. Since we're talking about the Washington Post today more than once, I did look up what the Post had to say in its obituary about Perry, and I noted that, well, it too bore some resemblance to the Wikipedia piece. But let me quote from it first of all. Noted the online encyclopedia. Robert Perry, June 24, 1949 to January 27, 2018, was an American investigative journalist best known for his role in covering the Iran-Contra affair for the Associated Press and Newsweek including breaking the psychological operations in guerrilla warfare, CIA manual provided to the Nicaraguan Contras, and the CIA and Contras cocaine trafficking in the U.S. scandal in 1985. He was awarded the George Polk Award for National Reporting in 1984 and the I.F. Stone Medal for Journalistic Independence by Harvard's Neiman Foundation in 2015. The Post, talking about his work on the scandal that brought him the George Polk Award, involving Iran-Contra. They said Mr. Perry said he and colleague Brian Barger's stories in the scandal were censored or held from print, sometimes for weeks or months, because of a conflict of interest in the AP. The Post notes that the Washington bureau chief was meeting with Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North, who served in the National Security Council, and whose contacts with Nicaraguan right-wing rebels, known as the Contras, were at the center of the scandal, that the bureau chief was meeting with him in an effort to negotiate the release of Terry Anderson, an AP journalist taken hostage during Lebanon's civil war. Perry told the Post back in 1987, AP, like the government, said the hostages would not change how we would handle the news, and yet I think the evidence was that we did. The AP denied that Terry Anderson's captivity influenced its coverage of Oliver North, who oversaw hostage negotiations for the White House, but was criticized by reporters such as Pulitzer Prize winner Seymour Hersh for being too timid in its coverage of the story. The Post notes that Mr. Perry left the AP in 1987 for Newsweek and then for the PBS series Frontline, where he worked as an investigative reporter. In 1995, frustrated by what he saw as dwindling venues for serious investigative reporting, Mr. Perry founded the Consortium for Independent Journalists. Its website, consortiumnews.com, sought to provide a home for such reporting in the early days of the Internet, although it struggled financially and relied on contributions. Well, yes, but Consortium News is very much still with us, and we recommend, dear listener, that you check it out, and not just by listening to our quotes from it, to follow shortly. Meanwhile, back at Wikipedia, it was noted that in mid-1985, Perry wrote the first article on Oliver North's involvement in the affair, and together with Brian Barger, later in that year, 
He broke the CIA and Contra's cocaine trafficking in the U.S. scandal, helping to spark Senator John Kerry's interest in investigating Iran-Contra. Wikipedia notes that the Associated Press had refused to publish the drug trafficking story and only relented when its Spanish-language newswire service accidentally published a translation. Barger and Perry continued to press their investigation of North, even as most of the media declined to follow it up. They eventually published a story in mid-86 based on 24 sources, which led to a congressional committee asking questions of Oliver North. After North denied the allegations, Barger was pushed out of the Associated Press, and Perry was unable to publish any further follow-ups to the story until after Eugene Hassenfuss's plane was shot down in Nicaragua in October. Wikipedia notes that after finding out that his boss had been conferring with North on a regular basis, he left AP to join Newsweek, which he also left in 1990. They note that in August of 1990, PBS's Frontline asked Perry to work on the October Surprise Conspiracy Theory. Now, in this case, conspiracy theory was not, in quotes, like Deep State. We were of the opinion on this program that there was indeed a series of backroom negotiations between elements of the Reagan camp and the Iranian government to keep the hostages. And in support of that, we refer you to our own archives for our interview with Barbara Honiger, whose book, October Surprise, we think makes a pretty definitive case that such a thing did take place. We would not hesitate also to recommend to you the, another book with the same name, October Surprise, written by Gary Sick, which also does a fine job of outlining the scandal. Meanwhile, back to Wikipedia, which noted that this is the October Surprise conspiracy theory, leading to Perry making several documentaries for the program broadcast in 1991 and 1992. Here's the zinger. He continued to pursue it after a congressional investigation had concluded the story was untrue, turning his frontline research into a book. And in 1994, he unearthed a, quote, treasure trove of government documents, unquote, supporting the theory, noting again that the quotation marks tend to cast doubt on the veracity of those documents. Perry stayed in the story, and we don't know about the following quote from Wikipedia, but it says, in 1996, Salon wrote about his work on the theory, saying that, quote, his continuing quest to unearth the facts of the alleged October surprise has made him persona non grata among those who worship at the altar of conventional wisdom, unquote. Well, we try not to worship at the altar of conventional wisdom here on Radio Parallax, and we suspect that the way that quote is framed leads you to believe that Salon thought that Perry was full of baloney. But we hope we get the chance to bring back to our program the founder of Salon, David Talbot, and ask him about this. I'll bet a hundred bucks David Talbot is, was completely and still remains completely in support of the efforts of Robert Perry. The Wikipedia goes on to note that when journalist Gary Webb published his newspaper series Dark Alliance in 1996, alleging that the Reagan administration had allowed the Contras to smuggle cocaine into the U.S. to make money for their efforts, Perry supported Webb amidst heavy criticism from the media. Again, we would refer you to our broadcast on that by checking it out on our website. We will excerpt a few minutes of that discussion as we close this segment. But before we do that, I want to quote from two pieces. One titled, When Intelligence Agencies Make Backroom Deals with the Media, Democracy Loses, by Bill Blunden, writing in truthout.org. Before we discuss the post in the Pentagon Papers from consortiumnews.com, 
by Jim DiEugenio. To quote from Bill Blunden's piece, Spielberg's new movie, The Post, presents the story behind Catherine Graham's decision to publish the Pentagon Papers in the Washington Post. As the closing credits roll, one is left with the impression of a publisher who adopts an adversarial stance toward powerful government officials. Despite the director's $50 million budget, or perhaps because of it, there are crucial details that are swept under the rug, details that might lead viewers toward a more accurate understanding of the relationship between the mainstream corporate press and the government. Notes Blunden, the public record offers some clarity. Three years after Graham decided to go public with the Pentagon Papers, Seymour Hersh revealed a Central Intelligence Agency program called Operation Chaos in the New York Times. Hersh cited inside sources who described a massive, illegal domestic intelligence operation during the Nixon administration against the anti-war movement and other dissident groups in the United States. Hirsch's article on CIA domestic operations is pertinent because along with early revelations by Christopher Pyle, it prompted the formation of the Church Committee, chartered to examine abuses by United States intelligence agencies. In 1976, the Commission's final report, entitled Foreign and Military Intelligence, found that the CIA maintained a, quote, network of several hundred foreign individuals around the world who provide intelligence for the CIA and at times attempt to influence opinion through the use of covert propaganda, unquote. And that, quote, approximately 50 of the agency assets are individual American journalists or employees of U.S. media organizations, unquote. He goes on to say these initial findings were further corroborated by Carl Bernstein, whose piece in Rolling Stone in 1977, entitled The CIA and the Media, is one we have quoted from briefly on this program in the past and cannot recommend to you highly enough. London goes on to ask, who exactly were these media collaborators? A declassified memo from 1965 offers a clue. The memo lists a series of journalists and publishers that periodically spoke to Ray Klein, then deputy director of the Director of Intelligence for CIA, and these are individuals who are picked in an effort to allow Klein to serve as a, quote, source of information, unquote, in order to, quote, benefit the general rapport of the agency, unquote, with the press. Guess whose name's on the list? Well, yes, Catherine Graham, publisher of the Washington Post and Newsweek. The article notes that according to former New York Times journalist James Risen, ongoing stealthy arrangements indicates that officials are regularly engaged in quiet negotiations with the press to try and stop the publication of sensitive national security stories. To do so, they need to offer incentives. Hence, in exchange for being granted veto power, these same officials soft-pedal leak investigations so that insiders can provide juicy bits of classified data to the press on a steady basis. The piece goes on to note that it gets worse. It's not just certain news outlets that have been compromised. Information and subversion are techniques that have been refined to a high art over the decades by the spy masters in Langley. They then cite a 1967 Ramparts magazine article about this topic, an article that is apparently online. London goes on to say that to think that all this simply vanished in the late 1960s is a dubious proposition. He concludes by saying, far from being opponents of the political class, media figures are often their close partners. This is why we need to circle back to consortiumnews.com and pick up this discussion about the Tom Hanks, Steven Spielberg movie, The Post. Now, for those of you who know nothing about 
this era and the story of Daniel Ellsberg and the Pentagon Papers, uh, we would say that the Post is not the worst place to start. It certainly gives you one narrative that's pretty watchable. But I have a pretty strong feeling that uh, that statement I just made would not be agreed with by my good friend, James DiEugenio. Jim is a man whose work we can also highly recommend to you. You can find it on the web. He and uh, frequent Radio Parallax guest Lisa Pease were the purveyors of Probe magazine, wherein you will find numerous valuable articles on the subject of deep politics. And when we say deep politics, we're not putting it in quotation marks. Mr. Diogenio goes on to describe the interesting case of Daniel Ellsberg, how this exceptionally smart guy went to Vietnam himself to learn firsthand how things were going and discovered that they weren't going so well. Unlike reporters on the scene, Ellsberg actually had access to highly secret documents analyzing what had gone wrong over there, documents later known as the Pentagon Papers, about which he made heroic efforts to get before the public, first going to politicians in Washington and finding that none of them were in a position to go forward with these findings, leading him to have to go to the press. As Diogenio outlines the story, he said, who wouldn't want to see a movie based on that story? Adding, who wouldn't like to be part of a movie based on that story? To which he then adds, well, evidently Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg wouldn't. Instead, they produced a movie, The Post, depicting a very different set of events. Jim notes that Daniel Ellsberg and his friend Anthony Russo risked going to prison for a combined 150 years for their efforts, and notes that Russo did in fact go to jail for refusing to testify against Ellsberg. Their trial went on for several weeks in Los Angeles in 1973, but while in the process it was revealed by the Watergate prosecutor that the FBI had illegally wiretapped Ellsberg, also that the White House had sent burglars to break into the office of his psychiatrist, and that President Nixon and domestic aide John Ehrlichman had offered the judge in the case, Matt Byrne, the directorship of the FBI while the trial was proceeding. As a result of these abuses, the charges against Ellsberg and Russo were dismissed. Jim notes that all of this and much more is profusely detailed in Ellsberg's 2002 book, Secrets, a memoir of Vietnam and the Pentagon Papers. That book provides the scaffolding for a gripping story full of both epic and personal drama. He notes, as we quoted previously on this program from his article on Ben Bradley, that in the 457 pages of Ellsberg's fine book, Washington Post executive editor Ben Bradley is mentioned exactly once. And Catherine Graham, the owner and publisher of the Post, is not mentioned at all. But, said Jim, it is upon Bradley and Graham that Hanks and Spielberg decided to base their film about the Pentagon Papers. Reading on. Yet in naming the film The Post, Hanks and Spielberg even distort who should get credit for breaking the Pentagon Papers in the press. Ellsberg had gone to four politicians in Washington and asked them to insert the voluminous Pentagon paper study into the congressional record. He thought this would be the safest legal way for him to get the study out, since the Constitution's free database clause protects senators and congressmen from being questioned about what they say on the floor. But, he noted, as we reported previously on this program, that for various reasons, Senator George McGovern, William Fulbright, Charles Mathias, and Representative Pete McCloskey all turned him down. It was at that point that Ellsberg got in contact with a man he'd met while he was in Vietnam, New York Times reporter Neil Sheehan. Having mentioned Sheehan, we should again plug his fine book on Vietnam, A Bright Shining War, John Paul Van 
and America in Vietnam. When first stationed in Vietnam, Sheehan, like his friend and colleague David Halberstam, had been a backer of the war. Since we're plugging, let's do a little more of it. David Halberstam's book, The Powers That Be, is a worthy read. Sheehan and Halberstam, suffice it to say, became opponents of our misguided efforts in Vietnam. After being contacted by Ellsberg, Sheehan drove up to Boston, where Ellsberg had a teaching fellowship at MIT. He read some of these secret documents and told his editors at the New York Times about them. Ellsberg had given Sheehan a key to his apartment, and on a weekend when he was not there and unawares to Ellsberg, Sheehan copied the Pentagon Papers and took them to New York. Diogenio notes that one of the hidden heroes of the Pentagon Papers case at this point stepped forward. This would be James Goodale, the general counsel for the Times. In March of 1971, he'd been tipped off that the newspaper might be coming into possession of a large amount of classified information. In the next few months, he and his assistant studied all the legal issues involved and predicted the possible ways Nixon could halt publication through prior restraint. He then looked at the stories the Times wanted to run. These included one on how Johnson had used false information about the Gulf of Tonkin incident in 1964 to pass a congressional resolution to wage war against North Vietnam. Goodale predicted the administration would use the Pentagon Papers as a way to continue Nixon and Vice President Agnew's war against the press. He then mapped out the defenses the Times would be able to utilize to neutralize the administration's attack. Jim Diogenio notes that Goodale's legal analysis was remarkably prescient. It was the issues he studied in March that decided the case for the Times in June. He notes that once the Times had the documents, there was a debate at the highest levels of management over whether to publish. Managing editor Abe Rosenthal threatened to resign if they did not, and it was a threat of mass resignations that convinced Punch Sulzberger, owner of the Times, to publish. Once that decision was made, the Times' conservative Republican law firm deserted them. Therefore, on the eve of trial, it was Goodale who put together an ad hoc defense team literally overnight. And it was that team which argued the first hearings of the Pentagon Papers case in New York. The article notes that contrary to what the Hanks Spielberg film depicts after the first day of publication, Nixon did not in fact fly into a rage. After all, the Pentagon Papers stopped in 1968 before he was elected. The stories by the New York Times had focused on the escalations during the Johnson administration. On that first day of publication, White House counsel Charles Colson advised Nixon not to overreact, and he did not. But there were two people who reversed Nixon's position. The first was Henry Kissinger, Nixon's national security advisor. Kissinger had known Ellsberg from his days back at Harvard. When Nixon took office, Ellsberg had consulted Kissinger on various options for the war from his position at the Rand Corporation. Kissinger knew about the Pentagon Papers, and he suspected almost immediately that Ellsberg had given them to the New York Times. On the second day of publication, Kissinger talked to Bob Haldeman, Nixon's chief of staff, and told him the president now had to act, for there was wholesale subversion of the government going on. He then told Nixon that the story somehow made him look like a weakling. you got to say one thing about Henry Kissinger. He knows how to play people. Nixon then asked Attorney General John Mitchell for an opinion on this issue. Mitchell, who'd been a bond lawyer in New York, gave Nixon poor legal advice. He told the president the government had sued to stop a newspaper from publishing before, and it was customary to give the paper notice of such legal action. 
The Eugenio notes this information was completely wrong. Such an act, legally called prior restraint, had never happened before in America. The reason being that in the United States, unlike in Great Britain, there is no official secrets act to justify stopping publication before the information is printed. Of course, having said that, we should cite the piece we just mentioned by Bill Blunden to reiterate that, well, there are ways that things can be kept out of the press, short of legal actions. But the piece notes that Goodale knew this from his research. Therefore, when Mitchell forwarded a telegram to the Times, he advised them not to obey the request to stop publishing. Mitchell then went to court to apply for a temporary restraining order on the grounds that the series was causing irreparable harm to national security. This was granted in New York by a newly appointed judge named Murray Gerfin. In the meantime, Nixon enlisted some friends, including General Maxwell Taylor, Senator John Tower, and Democratic Party fixture Averill Harriman to begin attacking the New York Times. It is only at this point, a year into Ellsberg's struggle to make the Pentagon Papers public, that the Washington Post entered the picture, and it did not happen the way the film depicts it. Ben Bradley never sent a spy to infiltrate the New York Times office. Therefore, that fictitious spy never saw a mock-up of the front page with Neil Sheehan's name on it. As Ellsberg writes in Secrets, he had never planned to go to the Washington Post. Dunn Gifford, a friend of Neil Sheehan's, who is completely absent from the film, first suggested to Ellsberg that he go to the Post. At this point, with the Justice Department's temporary restraining order in place and the Times going a day without publishing, Dunn Gifford urged Ellsberg to go elsewhere to keep the current moving. At that point, Ellsberg, through a friend, called Ben Bagdikian, who worked for the Post. I think... Being that we plan to bring Mr. Eugenio onto the program, we should probably stop at this point. There's a lot more to be said, and I think we'll let Jim say it directly. Instead, at this point, we're going to pull up Robert Perry and hear from him directly, as he spoke to us back in 2004. In this case, talking about his research into Iran-Contra. Certainly, uh, something was up in the Iran hostage situation in 1980. And I guess you've uncovered some new documents with the Russian government uh, about that. You know, there's been this issue for quite a while, too, another point in dispute of whether or not the Republicans, in, in their effort to reclaim the White House in 1980, undercut President Carter's negotiations with Iran. Uh, Carter was trying to get the release of 52 American hostages who had been seized, and he was struggling with that, those negotiations. And there have been a number of allegations now really from a couple dozen individuals from Europe, from Iran, from Israel, and elsewhere that the Republicans had made behind-the-scenes contacts with the Iranians themselves. First, I think, maybe to get the hostages out earlier to somehow assist in that early on in the campaign. But then as it got closer to the election, the concern became that Carter would get them out right before the election, and that would help him. And actually, the, the term October Surprise was largely coined by then-Vice Presidential Candidate George Bush, who had suggested that getting the hostages out might be Carter's October surprise, although the term has really since been applied more to the Republican behind-the-scenes efforts to block those negotiations or disrupt them. There is an, an awful lot of evidence, which I compile in Secrecy and Privilege, showing how this very dramatic history behind the scenes evolved from 79 through 80 and the role of people from the Central Intelligence Agency in it and the Russian government was asked in 1992 by a House task force, which was looking into this issue, what they knew about it. 
And the House Task Force was really trying to say nothing happened. As their time wound down in late 92, this was after uh, Bill Clinton had been elected, uh, George Bush Sr. had been defeated. So the end of the, the Bush presidency, more and more evidence started pouring into the task force showing that the Republicans had made these contacts and had interfered. Still, the, the task force tried to sort of write their report as if nothing much had happened. Right before the report was being issued, the Russian government returned with its own classified report, which was sent to Congress, a remarkable event in itself, considering the hostility between the two countries over the years. Mm -hmm. The Russian Intelligence Committee in, in the Duma effectively told the task force that the Republicans had made these contacts, that, that Soviet intelligence was aware of these meetings in Europe, and they implicated George Bush Sr., they implicated Bill Casey, the former CIA director, and other figures from the uh, CIA in making uh, contacts behind Jimmy Carter's back. So it turned out, by the way, that, that that document, even as remarkable as it was, was then hidden from the American people. The, the task force went ahead and wrote a release its dismissive report and hid these documents away in a, basically a warehouse situation, and I was able to access them a few years later. Wow. I don't know why this isn't front-page news, but it isn't. We salute Robert Perry and all that he did. We hope that Consortium News will continue and that it will receive the support it needs to continue. Let's take a short break. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. When we come back, we're going to talk about America's opioid crisis with Dr. Roger Orman. Stay tuned. <laughs> 